Recorded by The Way in Brea. Lead pastor Von Jarrett has a heart for the people at The Way and a desire to reach the lost. The Way's production department prays this message is a blessing to you and that you find yourself closer to God through application. today a lot that I want to share with you guys this morning uh, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of advance notice that uh, we have a, a special uh, baby dedication at the end of service today <coughs> so lots to look forward to but uh, but as Raymond said let's just lock in and and uh, uh, focus on the Lord and receive the word this morning amen amen, amen. All right, so today we're starting a new series. We're starting a study through the book of Ephesians. So I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're at the beginning of this. You don't have to get back into the app and try to listen to it. As we get ready to, uh, like Raymond said, uh, next week we'll be kicking off our, our life groups again. Uh, I think it's, it's God's timing. Uh, he began to speak to me about Ephesians before we went through Jericho, before we went through some of our summer stuff. So uh, I believe that he has a lot for us. And I'm going to do my best to, uh, to be timely and to uh, share just what he has this morning. I would say that this series is gonna be unique in the sense that it's uh, about some of the deep truths of our faith. Say faith. You know, we come to church a lot of times and we hear the word or we worship God or we, we get a little uh, snippet or a story or, or a gospel story, but we have some significant and deep truths in our faith and I think we're gonna see a lot of that as we go through the book of Ephesians. The truths of our faith are not trivial, they're not common, but a lot of times they get treated that way as Christians. We just kind of brush over it. We just kind of hear it preached to us. We shout out an amen and we keep going on with our business. But these things are so significant. They're so important. I met with some of the men uh, that I'm discipling here in our church this last Thursday. We had uh, a little bit of coffee together on Thursday night and we looked at, at Mark chapter 1. And in Mark chapter 1, Jesus is baptized, and it says that the heavens open up, the Spirit descends upon him like a dove, and then this voice from heaven comes out and says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we ask each other, like, really? <laughs> How many of you heard that story before? Raise your hand. Amen. But it's not trivial. What we just read right now is that Jesus, the Son of God, is getting baptized. The heavens open. The Spirit descends. God himself from heaven shouts out, this is my beloved Son. Not this is. He says, you are my beloved Son. God the Father is talking to the Son and people are hearing it. And we just act like it's no big deal. It's nothing to us. It's crazy. So as we get ready to go into the book of Ephesians, I want you to be able to just shake that off and say, this matters. This is significant. This is life-changing. This is world-altering type stuff. <clears throat> We're going to look at things that you may have heard about before, but maybe you haven't fully considered. Maybe you haven't really understood what it is that the Lord is saying. My hope is that we'll be able to see these truths for what they are, but also that we would connect the dots. The reason we do life group is to connect the dots. It's one thing to come into church and say, I get it now and I understand, and wow, that was, that was good. I should probably read that more. It's another thing to say, well, how does that matter to me? <laughs> what, what should that change when I go to work tomorrow? How should that impact me when I'm raising these children, whether they're one year old or 17 years old? We have to be able to connect those dots, and that's my hope for this study through the book of Ephesians, that we would be able to do that. We're going to look at some things that the Lord says that we need to put on. And then we're also going to look at things in Ephesians that he says he's doing from within us. <clears throat> For example, Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to be told to put on the helmet of salvation and to take up the shield of faith. These are things we put on and take up 
Isaiah 61.10 says, I'll greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation, and he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. God begins to speak to us about things that we put on. You put on this helmet. You put on this robe. You've been clothed from the outside with these things that God has provided for us. Later in Ephesians 5, we're going to be told not to be drunk with, the, with, uh, with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit. This is about what's going on inside of us, right? Somebody say amen. amen. Right? How many of you, and don't lie, how many of you have been drunk before? Oh, uh, Everybody raise your hand quick on that one. Look at you guys. So we've been there, and the whole idea of being, being drunk is we lose control. We do things that we wouldn't otherwise do. We say things that we wouldn't otherwise say. We feel like we have superhuman strength. We feel like all these things. And the, the scripture says, don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the spirit. The same thing is supposed to be true. You lose control. You have strength that you didn't have before. You do things that you otherwise would not be doing when you're filled with the spirit. Not from the outside, but from within. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, you are the temple of the living God. And as God has said, I will dwell in them. This is the truth of our faith. You are the temple of God. We didn't come into the temple of God and enter into the church today. Many temples of God came into this building and said, I have the spirit of God alive inside of me. There's outside and there's inside. There's clothing and putting on, but there's also a work that God is doing inside of each and every believer. Everybody say, get dressed. Get dressed. Say, get dressed. Get dressed. Say, be filled. Say, be filled. By the time we're done with this series, hopefully we will understand how to get dressed, to put on the things. Look at Siri. She thinks I'm talking to her. I ain't talking to you, Siri. (laughs) Hopefully we'll be able to understand the things that God is telling us to put on. Put on this helmet of salvation, right? This protection for your mind and the things that you've learned. You are clothed in righteousness. Jesus has put this robe upon you and says, listen, when my father sees you, he doesn't see the way you're dressed. He sees you in my clothes, my robe. It's all over you. You can enter in. You are the temple of the living God. You don't have to wait for church. You don't have to wait for a pastor. You don't have to wait for your life group host. You can get into the word of God. He dwells inside of each and every one of us. These are deep and significant and important truths of our faith. So one of the main things that I want to do today is give you a little bit of background, a little bit of context for Ephesus and for this letter to the Ephesians. I think it's important for us to understand um, who God's speaking to. So I got a couple of pictures for you. The first is of a map of Ephesus. Hopefully we, we have these. Ray, do you have that one? The first one, the picture map of Ephesus in the region. Stay there. So I guess a little bit blurry, but right there where it says Asia, Asia Minor, a lot of times in the scripture when we think of Asian, we think of Asian countries, but that's not what the Bible's talking about. It's this particular region. So you see Ephesus there in the middle, Corinth, letter to the Corinthians, the letter to the Thessalonians, Philippians. This is the region, right? So you see Ephesus there. That's the, the group of people that Paul is writing to. That's where this letter comes from, letter to the Ephesians. Next one, what does that look like today? It's Turkey, okay? So you've got Greece on this side. Some of our young people just went on vacation there. You've got Lebanon and Syria, Iraq, Jordan, and down here in the bottom you see Israel. So this is what it looks like today, what the countries are today. This group of people that over 2,000 years ago that Paul is writing this letter, six chapters to. Okay. Next picture, some of the ruins of the city. If you were to travel there right now, you will see ruins, you'll see temples, you'll see what it actually looked like when Paul was writing to this particular group of people, how they lived, right? 2,000 years ago, no electricity, uh, no running water type stuff. Very ingenious, very uh, smart group of people, uh, but it's not like it is today. This picture of a theater that's going to come up, this theater is going to come up as we go through this book. It was the largest theater um, in the ancient world. It held over 25,000 people in this theater in Ephesus, okay? Last one, or, or one of the last couple here. This is a, what it looks like modern day today. This is a cruise ship cruising into the port at Ephesus. So it's a port city. So what you need to consider, don't go back to the picture, but that picture that showed you all those different um, uh, cities, right? They would come into the port at Ephesus and then they would go to all these different locations that they needed to go through. So you've got a ton of people with different cultures, a ton of people from different countries coming into this one location and then being dispersed and interacting with one another. A lot of different ways of thinking, a lot of different cultures, right? A lot of different languages. It's like a melting pot of people. And then the last ones here, 
This is the god that they were worshiping there. Uh, her name is Diana, the goddess Diana. All right? She is a fertility type god, right? It's about uh, sexuality and fertility. She's multi-breasted. If you go to the next couple of pictures here, the things that we know about her, think about that, uh, a goddess of fertility, right? And a goddess of sex in a port city like this with all these people coming in and out of it. And imagine what the worship was like in this region as it spread out throughout the whole uh, area, right? I don't want us to make the mistake of thinking that that type of idolatry is a thing of the past. It's not. Most idolatry in the past and in the present has a significant portion of it that's focused on sexuality, on identity, on gender, right? The same things that we see in our world today are the same things that were going on in Ephesus at this time, and this was the epicenter of it. We may not have figureheads. Nobody goes out and says, we're worshiping the goddess Diana anymore, but the same things are happening. How many of you guys have heard of the, the goddess Dolores? Nobody? In Greek, it's, it's uh, pronounced dollars. <laughs> she has a temple, and one of her major temples is in the strip of Las Vegas. And at that same place, what do we see? Not only is it focused on money, many of us have an idol of money. We heard Raymond get up here and start talking about money, and, and we, we put the off switch, right? Don't touch my wallet. I'll come and give you an hour. I'll read the Bible from time to time. I'll even pray. But don't ask me for anything that I've made that I have in my pocket, right? It's an idol. If, if, if we worship that more than we worship God, it's, it's an idol. And what do we see in Las Vegas and everywhere else? Not just there, but there's that, that significant portion that's related to sexuality and sensuality. You see sex trafficking there. You see prostitution there. And you see adultery there. And we say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And we act like it's only in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. It's here and it's now. It's everywhere. And many of us were a part of it. That's what the Bible is going to tell us. And such were some of you. And we would have to raise our hand. I know I have to raise my hand. But thank God for Jesus. Amen? Amen. So let's look at Ephesus. I'm going to start with Acts chapter 19, verse 1. I'm just going to read through it so you guys don't have to turn there. It may come up on the screen, but I just want you to understand who this letter is going to be written to. Acts chapter 19, verse 1, it says, It happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, say Paul, Paul. having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. Finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard where there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? He comes to Ephesus. He sees believers. He says, do you guys have the Spirit? They say, what are you talking about? We don't even know there is a Holy Spirit. This is the city, and these are the believers that are there. They said, we were baptized into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, and that is on Jesus Christ. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues, and they prophesied. Now the, Holy, or, excuse me, now the men who were about twelve in all, and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So real quick, there's not a lot of disciples. There's 12 guys that believe there. He begins to tell them about the Holy Spirit. We understand Jesus now. We've got this spirit. He goes to the church, which is supposed to be filled with believers, and there's not believers there. He's arguing with them for three months. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the kingdom. And then they leave. They go to another city. He says, this continued for two years in Ephesus, so that all who dwelt in Asia, that whole region, heard the word of the Lord Jesus, Jews and Greeks, and God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus who Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did that. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? 
Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. It became known to both all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. And fear fell on all of them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Paul is preaching small group, spirit-filled, power, miracles. These Jewish people who are supposed to be believers in God start saying, we want to do what Paul is doing. They try to pray without the spirit, and they get beat down by demons. If you try to go to church without the Spirit, when you get back out into the world, you'll get beat down by demons. Verse uh, 18 says, Many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. And many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and a total of 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. And when these things were accomplished, Paul proposed in the spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver strive, uh, shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade of idol making, right? Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours endangered of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath, and they cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! So the whole city was filled with confusion, and they rushed into the theater, that giant theater, that I showed you guys? They rushed into the theater with one accord. They seized Gaius, Aristocrus, who are Macedonians and Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the, to the people, the disciples wouldn't allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him, pleading that he would not venture into the theater. They're like, they're going to kill you, Paul. Don't go in there. They are a mob and they are going to kill you. It says here, verse 32, some therefore cried one thing and some another. The assembly was confused. Most of them did not know why they had come together. They drew Alexander out of the multitude, the, joys put, the Jews putting him forward. Alexander motioned with his hands and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! Great is Diana of the Ephesians! Great is Diana of the Ephesians! And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to just be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you've brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemies of your goddess. Therefore, Demetrius, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and they're pro-councils. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar. There being no reason we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the background for Ephesus. This is the background for the letter that we're going to go through that's written to the Ephesians. This is the world that they live in. All these cultures, they hear that it's even a Jew about to talk, and they start shouting, great is the goddess Diana. For two hours, great is the goddess Diana. This letter that's written to them is important. Somebody say amen. Understanding the world that they live in is important. <clears throat> Paul is ministering for two years here, building a church in the heart of the enemy's camp. This ain't playtime letters. This ain't your, your life group leader calling you and saying, hey, are you going to make it this week? Can you bring some potato salad? <laughs> this ain't the women's fellowship saying, hey, we're about to have brunch. You know, we want to come out for an hour and hang out together and, and pray together. This is life and death gods and goddesses, Zeus and Diana versus Jesus and Paul and these 12 little scrubs. 
They're, they're going to be overpowered and killed, and he's writing to them to say, you got to understand this. Later on, when Paul's done here, he plants Timothy that we mentioned here. He says, Timothy, you're going to be the pastor at Ephesus now. He says, you better be strong. You better be ready. Timothy was a young man. He was like one of you guys over here. Young man, young woman. It wasn't the most skilled and the most well-rounded, the most experienced Christian in the room. He said, hey, Timothy, <laughs> you ready? I'm leaving you at Ephesus. <laughs> and then later on in his life, Paul's in prison for preaching the gospel. He would not stop preaching. He writes the letter to the Ephesians while he's in prison. And then he sends this to them. And what we're about to get into and read is what, what they received. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, this is what Paul says. He says, if in the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. But what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Paul to the Corinthians is writing, listen, when I was in Ephesus, I was doing battle with beasts. Diana is a beast in Ephesus. She's killing people, and they came after me and tried to kill me. He said, what did I do all that battle for if there's no resurrection? If we don't die and raise like Jesus rose, why did I do all that? And why am I writing to you? He said, When somebody comes against you and they want to talk about who had which baby and who did what and who was the best teacher, get off of that and get on to Jesus in Ephesus. At the end of the scriptures, in the book of Revelation, this is what it says about Ephesus. And then you'll actually get into Ephesians. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. This is uh, John, the disciple that leaned on the breast of Jesus, right? When Jesus was talking. John gets taken up into, into heaven. He has this vision, and this is what John says. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as if it was a child. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book. Send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, and I, having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. His head had hair, and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, refined in a furnace. His voice as the sound of many waters, and he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I was dead. He laid his hand, his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and I have the keys of Hades and death. Oh, my God. <laughs> Could you imagine? Jesus is standing there in all of his glory. His eyes are burning like a flame of fire. John's hearing it. What's the first thing he says? I'm going to tell you some stuff, and I want you to tell the churches, and let's start with Ephesus. <laughs> Last one, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. This is what the Lord says to John to say to the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write... These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Jesus says, I know your works, Ephesus. I know your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. You've tested those who say they're apostles and they're not, and you found them to be liars. You've persevered and you have patience. You've labored for my namesake and you've not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, 
I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This is what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. This is what Jesus says to us. He says, you guys are killing it. You're doing it for me. You hate evil. You're going every Sunday. You're giving your tithes and your offering. But wait, you left your first love. You don't even love me anymore. You don't sing with tears. You don't come to the altar. You don't fall before me as if I am the love of your life. And he says, I don't care what else you're doing. If you don't do that, you need to repent. Amen. That's right. Man, wouldn't it be nice if we just stayed in certain sections? <laughs> Where's that part about just forgiving everything I do and I'm good? Man, Ephesus, Ephesians, going to be so good. Can I pray? Yes. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to be in it. I thank you that we get to be together, Lord God. I thank you that you know the end from the beginning. You're the Alpha and the Omega. You're the beginning and the end, Lord God. I thank you that you have more confidence in us than we have in ourselves. I thank you that it's not dependent upon us, but upon your spirit that lives inside of us, Lord, that we can be effective. We can be successful, Lord God. We come to you with open hearts, with open minds this morning. We truly do repent this morning. If we've lost our focus, if we've lost our first love, Lord God, if we've made this relationship with you about anything beyond you, Lord, help us and forgive us this morning, God. We didn't come to be in the church. We came to be the church this morning, God. We want to hear your voice. We want to see you the way that John saw you, Lord God, in all of your glory. Help us to understand your word. Help us to, to remember that this, this letter that was written to the Ephesians, Lord God, those are our brothers and those are our sisters. They've come before us, Lord. They've done battle, Lord God. They've endured. They were victorious, Lord. We have a responsibility to you and to them to understand what it is that you were doing and what it is that you are doing this morning here in this very room, Lord God. Just help us. All we ask is that you would intervene. You are the God that is alive. You are the God with hands. You are the God that sees everything that's happening, Lord. Diana has no eyes. She has no ears. She has no hands that can reach. Only you can. So we ask that you reach into our hearts this morning, reach into our minds, intervene, bring us back into alignment with you and your word and your will. We love you and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 All right, I think we're still doing all right on time. So Ephesians chapter 1. Paul's writing to this crazy group of people in a crazy time, on a crazy place within the world. And uh, he's reminding them of a few things. Number one, who God is. Number two, what God is doing. And number three, who they are in Christ. That's what he's trying to tell these people. When Paul's sitting in prison and he thinks, oh God, my people in Ephesus, Timothy who's there, I got to remind them who God is. I've got to remind them what he's actually doing, and I've got to remind them of who they are in Christ. My prayer this morning is that you came in here to be reminded of who God is, to be reminded of what he's doing, right, and who you are in Christ. If you came for something else, I, 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 I ain't got it. I ain't got it. This is all we got this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. If you're there, say amen. amen. If, you need a, if you need a minute, say hold on. All right, go ahead and turn. Open those bad boys up. We're going to have it up here, but good Lord, there's something about having this book with you. Yes. Keep one in the car. Keep one in like your bag or your purse. Put a little mini one in there. You got one in your phone already. Keep one at work. Somebody might mistake you for a believer. Put it on your desk. All right, Ephesians chapter 1. I'm just going to read to start just the, the first five verses. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Stop there, verse 5. Picture this. We can't explain the world that they live in. This letter shows up from Paul. It's not like our church. They're all huddled up in the middle of the night, candle lit, and they say, the letter came. It's here. Is everybody here? We're gonna, I'm going to read it to you. 
And I begin to read this letter and Paul starts off, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and I'm writing to saints who are in Ephesus. Not everybody, not anybody in the church, not anybody that showed up tonight to hear the letter written, but true saints, true believers who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I'm an apostle. I know who I am. I know how I was called. I wasn't called like the 11 disciples minus Judas, right? I wasn't called like them. I was going to kill Christians and he knocked me off my horse. He blinded me for three days. Then he spoke to me and he said, I have something for you. That's the man that's writing to you, first and foremost. We've heard it before, but imagine hearing that for the first time in Ephesus in a candlelit service. He began to tell the people about Jesus and one by one, they began to put their faith in this God that they had never heard of, right? It says that he talked to these first 12, and then he began to teach and preach in the synagogue for three months and two years in the city all around Asia, right? And one by one, people are believing. But they're not Jews that know the Father God, and now they just need to be introduced to the Son, Jesus. These are non-believing Gentiles from all other kinds of uh, backgrounds and cultures and nations, and he's got to tell them who Jesus is, who the Father is. It's just like us. How many Jews in here this morning? How many of you uh, uh, memorized the whole Torah before you were seven years old? Right? What that means is that just like Paul went into Ephesus, somebody came to you and said, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the Bible. Let me tell you about Abraham and Isaac. Let me tell you about Esther. That's what's going on. One by one, people are beginning to believe. That's who this letter is coming to. And what's the first thing that he wants them to know? Verse 3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Paul wants them to know that they have been chosen. He says, it doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter that there's only 12 of us, or maybe now there's only 100 of us, or maybe now there's 500 of us against thousands and thousands of people. I want you to know that you can walk with me and help me and folded my whites with me. If we know the mysteries and we know who he is and we know all the riches, it says that we, the ones who first believed, we're the first ones to trust. We should be to the praise of his glory. People should be saying there's something about that Jesus and I can tell because of the way they live. And these are the believers in Ephesus who have it much harder than we have it. I feel like I've been saying this a lot in this church. Like, you can go somewhere else and you don't have to hear this. <laughs> But if you come here, you got to hear it because it's what it says. Amen. It ain't about you. It ain't about what you have. It's about knowing who he is and what he's given to all of us. And he wants something from us. I'll get myself in trouble. It's supposed to be inspirational and hopeful. <laughs> Do more. Give more. Sacrifice more. Have perspective. Let's go on to verse 13. Speaking of Jesus, it says, In him who you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Man, there's a lot about praise, a lot about glory, and a lot about him. Verse 11 said, we're in, we're in verse 13 and 14, but verse 11 said, In him also we have obtained an inheritance. Right? You have an inheritance. Anybody in here have parents that left them an inheritance? Like three of us. The rest of us, we don't know nothing about that. Our parents left us debt, and that's all we're going to leave our kids. <laughs> hey, look, I'm about to go, and uh, uh, I didn't really tell you this, but uh, I had used your social security number once or twice, and... <laughs> that's what we leave we leave debt behind we leave destruction behind we get divorced and we leave our families behind to clean up the mess and what it says here though is that when you become a child of God you have an inheritance and it's a good one your father is the richest father ever your father is the most loving father ever your family is the biggest family ever we got a lot of Mexicans in our church and y'all got big families but you ain't got nothing on Jesus and his family we're all over the place. You have an inheritance is what we got. In him, 
Verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So it's not just like an inheritance you think you got. You actually have a guarantee. Until the redemption of the purchased possession. So this is Paul talking to the believers in Ephesus. And I think he's telling them one of the most significant truths in all of Christianity. You have been given the Holy Spirit as a seal and as a guarantee. I think we've heard that before, but I don't know if we really, really understand what that means if it's true. I believe it's true. And it means something. What it means to be sealed by the Holy Spirit is that it's now God's responsibility to bring you home, to bring you to heaven. Jesus went, remember when he was praying at the end and he's talking to his father and he says, of the ones you gave me, I've lost none. Right? He says, the only one that ain't coming is Judas. And we knew he wasn't coming. (laughs) He says, the other 11, you put them in my hand, I haven't lost them. If you're in his hand, he will not lose you. It doesn't matter if you're one of the smallest kids or one of the oldest people in the church. If you're in the hand of Jesus, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. What that means is he is going to bring you home no matter what and no matter what the cost is. Oh, it's so important to understand that. Imagine if you're in Ephesus and you're like, I ain't going to make it. I'm still in that Diana mode. I heard about Jesus and I'm, I'm with this small group of people, but I find myself thinking about Diana. I find myself thinking about those ships that used to come in and the men that used to get off and the women that used to get off and the things that we used to do. And we used to say that this is honoring our goddess to live this way. I don't know if I'm going to make it. And Jesus says, you've been sealed. You're going to make it because it's on me. This is what Paul's telling them. And he says, not only have you been sealed, but you've been given the spirit as a guarantee. Especially as a pastor, this is to me the most important thing. What Paul is saying is, you don't have to take my word for it. I was there for two years, and maybe it was my charisma and my passion that led you to the Lord, and now you're thinking to yourself, man, this is Paul's thing. Maybe you're thinking, this is my mom's faith, my dad's faith. What if I was born somewhere else and I didn't come to Christianity? This This ain't really what I truly believe, is it? Maybe she wants you to get saved, or he wants you to get saved. I can't tell you how often I think to myself, like, man, if it was dependent upon all that for people to get saved, this would be the worst thing to be involved in. (laughs) Because people are crazy. We change our minds all the time. Right? I ain't going to put them on blast too much. I won't tell you who he is, my brother-in-law, Raymond. (laughs) But Mary always talks about, like, he wanted to be a skater. Then he wanted to be a groover. Then he wanted to party. Then he wanted to be a lowrider. Like, he wanted to do all kinds of stuff, right? We change all the time. And we have good reasons for why we change. But Paul says, listen, you have been not only sealed, but you have the guarantee of the Holy Spirit, which means you know inside your own heart that God is real. You know inside your own life that he saved you. It's not taking my word for it or his word for it or or you joined a new crew or a new group, so now you call yourself a Christian. Paul says if you're a real believer, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you and you know for sure that you are saved. That's what he's telling this crazy group of believers in Ephesus, and that's what I'm telling this crazy group of believers here in Brea this morning. Don't take my word for it. Expect the Holy Spirit to confirm it for you. If the Holy Spirit hasn't confirmed, confirmed it for you, now you can take the word of God and say, you say you will. I need you to do this for me. Romans 8.23, Paul is now talking to the church in Rome like he was talking to the church in Ephesus. He says to them, not only that, But we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption and the redemption of our bodies. In Ephesus, he says, you got the seal, right? And then he says, you got the confirmation or the guarantee. Why? Because eventually you're going to be redeemed. There's going to be a redemption that you have to wait for. He's telling the same story to the Romans. He says, you are going to be redeemed. What is he trying to get us to understand? He says, you still got to live in Ephesus for now, though. (laughs) You still got to deal with your family drama for now, though. You still got to be broke for a while for now, though. He's saying there's going to be this full redemption. Right now, you got the Spirit as a guarantee that one day he's coming back for you. We live with the guarantee 
We live as filled, spirit-filled believers, and one day we're going to be fully redeemed. We're like cans and bottles. You know, like you're going to recycle. You take an empty can, an empty bottle, and you throw it into the recycle bin. Why? Because you know that one day you're going to drive to the recycle center and you're going to redeem those bottles for money. Nobody recycles anymore. That's the only way I got money when I was a kid. Mow the lawn, go down to ecology. You take 18 bags of, of cans and bottles and you get $3.27. You go straight to AMPM and you spend all of it. It's the process I need you to understand. Redemption. If you understand redemption, say amen. amen. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, you got the spirit. You got the guarantee. You are now an empty bottle. You are now an empty vessel. God will fill you so that he can use you to touch other people's lives. You may look like a, an old, dirty bottle. Imagine if I bring you a, a smashed water bottle, old and dirty from my house right now. You're going to look at that and say, ugh, I'm not going to drink out of that. But if you have no water, if you have no bottles in your country, if nobody ever told you that your thirst can be quenched, you're going to look at my old, dirty bottle a little bit differently. That's what Jesus is saying is that you may look that way to the world, but to those who are starving and to those who are thirsty, you are the source of life because of what I put in you. And then he says this, I want to use you as you are, and then one day I'm going to come back for you. We're going to meet at the recycling center. And what you thought, the bottle said CRV, five cents. You thought they were going to give you five cents for that bottle. He says, I'm going to purchase you for more value than anything on the earth when I redeem you fully and completely. Man, this story is crazy. We don't know the story. We come to church and we don't know the story. We hear Ephesians, they're like, oh man. When's the series on name it and claim it? <laughs> when's the series on why I'm more blessed than stressed? <laughs> when's, this, when's the series on I'm the head and not the tail? And he's like, Look at it. I'm telling you the whole mystery. Let's see if we can finish up. Verse 15. He says, therefore. All the time when you read therefore in the Bible, it means think of everything that I just told you and therefore, right? So the first 14 verses, you need to know that. And then he says, therefore, I also... After I heard of your faith, Paul's talking to the Ephesians. After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that he may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now Paul's telling the believers, this is how I pray. And this is how I pray for you. And this is what I'm thinking about you. He says in verse 17 that he's praying for the believers that the Father of glory may give to them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That's his prayer. Now think about that for a second. Paul's not praying for a better life for them. Paul's not praying for them to get out of Ephesus. Paul's not praying for them to get out of debt. Paul's not praying for them in all of these regular areas that we all need the help of God in. What Paul's praying for is more of the spirit of wisdom and revelation in their understanding of Jesus. Apparently, there's more spirit and more fullness that Paul wants them to enter into. They're already saved. They're already gathering as a church. They're already fighting against the enemy as they try to gather in Ephesus. And Paul, instead of encouraging them and saying, you're doing enough, he says, man, I pray that you get more spirit, more fullness, more understanding of who Jesus is. So for you here this morning, my prayer is for more of the spirit, 
more understanding of who Jesus is, a more full relationship with the Holy Spirit. We do not have enough. There's more for us to have. Why should we want that? Why does Paul want them to have it? Why should we want to have that? In verse 18, Paul says, here's why. That you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power. It says that Jesus called us for a reason. What is his hope? What does he desire? What does Paul desire? What do I desire? What do you desire? He calls for a reason. What is, what is it that he's hoping for? That we would know his riches and his power. The more you read this, the more you understand his riches. The more you read through this and, and you had a, an under, a thought about what the riches were, you'd say, oh man, I didn't know that I get this. I didn't know that he gave that. I didn't know that this happened. I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't know. He said, you got to get more understanding so you can know what the riches are and so that you can know the power. Amen. Riches and power in Ephesians chapter 1 this morning is not the same thing as money and an ability to do whatever you want to do in Christ. A lot of us know Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? That doesn't mean you have the power to do whatever you want to do as long as you tag Jesus on the back of it. That's not the power that he's talking about and the ability that he's talking about. When he says the riches, it's not about how much money you will or will not have in your bank account. It's a different kind of wealth. It's a different kind of riches. And the power he's talking about is resurrection power, life-giving power. Not the power to say, I set my mind to this and I want to see it happen. God will do things in regular areas of our life. But what he's saying is, I want you to know the power that rose him from the grave is the same power that saved your life and gives you eternity. And it's the same power that you can speak into the lives of others and over the lives of others. That you are a dead man walking, you are a dead woman walking, but there is a power available to you that can bring you to life. This is what Paul is talking about to the Ephesians. And this is the power we need to be talking about in the church. This is the wealth that Paul is talking about throughout all of Scripture, that God is talking about through all of Scripture. When Jesus says, render unto Caesar what Caesar's. Render unto Caesar's palace in Vegas what Caesar's. Like, go do the money thing somewhere else. He says, render unto me, render unto God what's mine. You belong to me. Your life belongs to me. Your soul belongs to me, and that's what I want. Last one, last three verses. Ephesians 1, 21 through 23. Jesus is far above all principality, above all power, might, and dominion, above every name that is named, and not only in this age, in Ephesus 2,000 years ago, but also in the age which is to come, in Brea in 2019. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul tells the Ephesians, who may be hearing it for the first time, you've heard that before, <laughs> but imagine hearing it for the first time. Paul says, Jesus is the head and you are the body. Imagine that truth really hitting your heart for the first time. I'm that connected to this Savior. He's the head and I'm the body. He's the source, but as a believer, I'm the fullness. There's something he wants to do, and instead of doing it on his own, he chose us to do. You've received adoption. You've been given the chance to know the mysteries and the will of God, and you've received an inheritance. That's what he, that's what he told the Ephesians. That's what I'm telling you this morning. But all that's going on inside of you while you live in the world that worships Diana. <clears throat> right? His letter to them is saying, let me tell you who he is, what he's done, what he's doing right now inside of you. I want you to understand this. But on the outside of you, you still live in a world that worships Diana. It's the same for us. God wants you to know all this is true of us this morning, but we still live in a world that worships Diana. We all used to be part of it. <laughs> and it's still out there. No matter who tells you that everything's all good out there, it's not all good out there. We have to know this and understand this. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have access to riches and power. When you read through the Gospels, I'm going to close with this. 
when you read through the Gospels, when this happens to someone, this is how the story typically reads. Think about everything we talked about this morning and all this deep truth, important truth. But if you read through the Gospels, the story reads like this. Somebody ran into Jesus. Jesus shared a couple of words with them, and then he said, go and sin no more. You're forgiven. Right? Jesus didn't read through everything that we read this morning, right? He encountered them. He touched them and healed their eyes, touched them and healed their ears, told them about their adultery and their forgiveness. And then he said, I love you. Go and sin no more. So if that's what happens when somebody meets Jesus, how do they get to a place where they understand all the stuff that we talked about this morning? It's called the church. It's called Paul writing a letter saying, I know that you believe, but let me tell you what you believe. Let me show you the riches of what you believe. Let me explain what actually happened when you raised your hand and said, yes, I want Jesus. Let me explain what actually happened when you walked to the front and said, please pray with me. Let me explain what's actually happening when you say, will you please forgive me of my sins and wash me with the blood of righteousness? We have a responsibility, church. Yes. Just like Paul, he felt he's sitting in prison. And he says, man, I got to tell him about the riches. We're free and don't know the riches and are not concerned with telling others. This is not what Jesus intended for his church. We have to be like Paul and pray for the rest of the believers. We have to teach like Paul taught. We have to pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation and understanding about the knowledge of God. Only thing I wish this morning is that we had more time to talk about it, but we don't. <laughs> So uh, worship team, matter of fact, worship team, just, just Isaiah, come on up for a few minutes. We've got some exciting business that Jesus is definitely uh, excited about. You can leave these front ones on a little bit, Ray, so we can uh, see this beautiful baby that's going to work her way up here. Amen. So if Trayvon and Nicole, Trayvon and Nicole, if you guys can come up and, and just bring Parker with you. If you want to seat, some of our men will grab them. You guys can come on up to the front. We're going to talk for a minute. Give him a hand. Isn't she gorgeous? That's a picture of her in her uh, birthday suit, getting ready for her stuff. Matter of fact, uh, Gilbert, do you mind grab a couple of these chairs so that they can sit and uh, hear some things? Amen. Go. I'm going to face you guys this way so that everybody will not focus on this beautiful baby and so that I can talk to you guys for just a minute. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so I always think about this when, when a baby's born and, and uh, when we talk about understanding things, church, and we talk about thinking through things, not just listening, and, and, but actually thinking through them, you know, and again, we're not just pointing the finger at the world, but... I don't understand how somebody could see this and think, I did that. <laughs> I put those eyes there. I put that beautiful face there. I put that heart there. Like, you didn't do much. <laughs> There's a God who makes us. We have a creator. We have somebody who loves us. I don't understand. But again, we all used to be there. So Trayvon and Nicole are, are dedicating Parker this morning. And uh, I don't have to, to be around her all the time to know that she loves you guys and that she longs to be with you. When you're not there, she's thinking about you. When she wants something, she's not looking to others to meet that need. She's looking to you guys. <clears throat> Nobody has to uh, teach her that. She's okay. Aww. <laughs> Nobody has to teach her that, right? She knows that her parents are the source of everything for her, right? Nobody's sitting her down and saying, let me explain to you who Trayvon is. Let me explain to you who Nicole is. No, she's like, I need this, I'm going there. I need that, I'm going here, right? She doesn't doubt for a second that she's loved. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, the scriptures say, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God is a loving Father, but we've been convinced oftentimes otherwise. 
Christians typically behave legalistically because we believe that we have to earn and pry love and blessings from his hand. Do this, do that, go here, give this much. Go to this men's thing, go to that women's thing. Like if you want the love of God, you got to pry it from his hands because he doesn't want to give it to you. The world that's out there without God, they reject him because even though they know he exists, the scriptures say everybody knows that God exists. They believe that he's harsh and that he's condemning. So they refuse to engage him and they refuse to ask him for anything. They definitely won't surrender to him. So they live as if he doesn't exist. So what I want to do with you guys is just share, hopefully quickly, three things. Number one is what happened. We talked about this a little bit in our study today. In the garden, Satan convinced Adam and Eve that God was restrictive and that he didn't have their best interest in mind and that he didn't love them completely. Genesis 3, 4 says, The serpent said to the woman, You'll surely die. God knows that in the day you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. That belief and that feeling that God is withholding something, it caused them to pursue a life without him. And it puts sin into our bloodstream. Everybody that's here, because of that decision, we have this sin within us. So at some point, Parker, this precious child may feel as if God doesn't love her, just like many of us have felt. <clears throat> we feel like our parents didn't love us or didn't love us enough a lot of times. Many of you have experienced that. And one day Parker may look up and say, my parents don't love me as much and God doesn't love me. She may be in that place. But as we mature, most people come to this realization that our parents did love us. They did the best they could. It might not have been great. <laughs> but they did the best that they could. <clears throat> Sadly, though, many people never return to God and say, he does love me. We misunderstand who he is and how he loves us. So that's what happened. What's happening right now? Romans 5.18 says, As through one man's offense, Adam, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. And through one man's righteous act, the free gift of God came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Adam in the garden and the righteous act of Jesus on the cross. But we're here for a child, Parker, this morning that doesn't know anything about either one. She doesn't know about Adam and she doesn't know about Jesus. At least not in the way that we know about Jesus. You know, huh? Look at her smile. Oh, I wish you guys could see it right now. Oh, you, I said, Jesus, you know him? She's looking at me like, I know him. Don't tell me I don't. But what's happening today is about her covering, okay? Adam sinned, Eve sinned, they felt naked. So what they did is they grabbed a fig tree, they covered themselves because they said, I don't want to be naked out there. God came and he looked at them and he said, listen, you are naked and you are exposed, but you can't cover yourself. I'm going to cover you. He killed an animal. He said, there's going to be blood for your covering. And then he covered them, right? God says that man will never feel fully covered no matter what he does until he understands and receives the covering of Christ. Fig tree, finances, boyfriend, girlfriend, Whatever it is, whatever covering we try to use, it's not going to work. So Parker, yes, you, she was born naked, she was born exposed, but what you two have decided to do by dedicating her today is to have her covered by God. You're asking, amen. amen. You're asking that the blood of Christ would truly cover her. So the picture painted is that God's given you a child. You turn around and give the child back to God. And you say, Lord, bless her. Cover her. Help us. And he says, okay, take her back home. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to resource you like we talked about today. I'm going to give you what it takes for her to stay under my covering. It's a special thing what's happening today. So the last thing is what's going to happen in the future. So I had a friend that posted this on Facebook. I want to share it with you guys, share it with everybody else here. It said, do not educate your children to be rich. Educate them to be happy. So when they grow up, they'll know the value of things and not the price. And I thought, hey, that's true. I like that. But it would sound a little bit differently if it was uh, applied to the things of God. So I rewrote it for you guys. 
It says, do not educate your children to pursue anything before they pursue God. Educate them to seek joy, which cannot be taken from them, unlike happiness. And when they grow up, they will value their life and understand the price Jesus paid for it. One child saved us all, and one child could be used for God to save others this morning. That's my hope. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. and Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.thewaybrea.com or you can download our church app by visiting your app store and searching The Way Brea. Be blessed.